This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Frank Blank Moriarty. Today is the 9th of September 2013. We're conducting this interview in my house in lovely Roxborough, uh, where Frank used to live at one point. Yes, I did. Uh, and today is, or I already said that, uh, and this is part of Loud Fast Philly. Hi, Frank. Greetings. Yeah, I lived in Roxborough on Rock Street. So Rock Street. How appropriate. Pretty cool. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's talk about Young Frank, uh, as we are want to begin, uh, where were you born and when? I was born in White Plains, New York in November of 1955. Uh, soon after that, uh, we moved to uh, the Chicago area and from Chicago to Memphis, Tennessee, and from Memphis, Tennessee up to Philadelphia area, which I arrived in approximately 67, late 67, mm-hmm. and um, just in time to... Uh, see music undergoing a seismic shift from the pop music of the 60s which had been earlier which was great for me because when i lived in memphis um you know elvis lived there and mm-hmm. uh there were a lot of bands like sam the sham and the pharaohs were around um who actually sam the sham was the first rock star i ever met so you met him what when you were there in memphis, how, how yeah. old were you at that time? Uh, oh gosh i was probably like uh eight nine years old um we we went everywhere on our bikes. I don't think kids really get to do that these days. But um, I saw Sam the Sham was on the local teenage dance party TV show. So I hopped on my bike and rode over to the studio, and mm-hmm. they were loading out into the hearse out there. So I went up and they had they drove in a hearse. Yeah, yeah, they oh, used nice. all their equipment in the hearse. So I, I ride my bike up to Sam the Sham, and um, look at him. I go you're Sam the Sham. And he goes, that's right, kid. And that was the extent of my conversation, <laughs> my first interview. That's so right. It was fun. But, so you uh, were a rock kid from Virginia. I was a rock kid from, uh, I can remember in second grade uh, when I lived in Hinsdale, Illinois, just outside of Chicago, riding my bike to uh, a kid in my class. His mom owned a record store. And that was when you would listen to records in the store before you bought them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I always remember uh, in second grade riding my bike down and buying the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand. I saw her standing there. That was and, your first record? Yeah, I still oh, have it. Oh, such a good too. first record. Yeah, I still have it. And from that time on, really, I was, I was uh, obsessed with music, and that's remained the case uh, to this day. Mm-hmm. What was the reason why you were moving around so much when you were young? Uh, my father. My father was uh, taking different jobs with different companies. And I think at that time in, in uh, the American culture, people were more likely to move from city to city in pursuit of jobs. Like if you could get a better job in another city, everybody packed up and went. So mm-hmm. uh, I remember at one point they were, there was some talk of moving to Omaha, which I was not real well, thrilled you're about. You're not going to find great rock culture there. Yeah. Not that Omaha's not a nice place, I'm sure. I'm sure it's delightful, but I mean, can you think of any bands that came out of Omaha? I'm sure you can, but... No, I don't know about that. I'll have to think on that one. I'll, it percolate in the back of the head if it comes out yeah, before just we're burst done. out with yeah. it in the middle of the interview. Omaha. Yeah. Uh, so when you came into Philadelphia, where, what neighborhood were you living in here? Uh, we lived out first. First, we lived in the presidential apartments on City Line Avenue. And then after that, we moved over to Wynwood. And um, it was an interesting time because, as I said, there were a lot of seismic shifts going on in music at that period. And I, I the first real clear indicator I remember of that is hearing the Who's I can see for miles on the radio, and that had a certain aggression and a power, which still I believe it has to this day. Mm-hmm. But it really opened my eyes that that there was this power music that was out there, 
And it was also coming on the heels of the Beatles having, you know, done like Tomorrow Never Knows. And, you know, all of a sudden the Beatles had, had gone in this radically different direction. And, and that music was getting played on commercial radio, but it was, you'd listen to it and you'd be like, what, what is going on here? You know, I mean, this is, this is different. Mm-hmm. Was, it, I, was it classified as psychedelia at the time? I, no, I think it was right on the, the edge of it. You know, it, it probably did like late in 67, around the time we moved up to Philadelphia, I think it was right. Or that was the tail end of the summer of love and all that. But um, hearing, hearing that, that version of I Can See for Miles, and also in school, in art class, there was a kid who was a year ahead of me who did a giant painting of Jimi Hendrix. Mm-hmm. And it was the color rendition of the black and white back cover of Are You Experienced? And I, I was fascinated by it and started like talking to him. And he told me, you know, about Hendrix. And so I um, began to investigate Jimmy's music and also the music of Cream and, you know, the other bands that were around then. But then a funny thing was I was a member of a Presbyterian church and Hendrix by that point had gotten big enough that he'd already played Philadelphia at the Electric Factory and at, uh, God, what was that place at 40th and Market, the Arena. Now he was big enough that he could play the Spectrum. And he called the tour Electric Church. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden this church's youth director goes, we're going to take the kids down to see Jimi Hendrix. The only possible thing I can think is they thought it was a church thing. Right, you know, right. Electric yeah. church. Oh. And this guy was such a square, he had never heard of Jimi gotta Hendrix. Be, gotta be. So we had seats in the next to the last row of the spectrum, so high up in the rafters. And I'm like, you know, well, this, this is never going to do. And I was 13, you know. So at that time, you know, ushers were not going to like, clock 13 year old kids or stop them or anything Mm -hmm. so right before jimmy came on i left the top and just made my way down all the way to the floor and got down to the sixth row where i ran into people you know up toward the stage and jimmy's about to come on and i look to my left and there's this 21 year old i'd say blonde hippie chick beautiful Mm -hmm. and she looks down she goes do you want to stand on my chair with me so you can see hell yeah yes i do (laughs) and uh so that was my first serious live music exposure was being about 20 feet out from jimmy with this girl and uh boy that was uh if i wasn't already obsessed with rock i became yes it's funny because it's interesting because for some people don't really have these kind of events but for me i have two significant musical events that changed things for me one was um that night april 12 69 and then the other was september 22nd of 79 a decade later uh when i first met the clash and i don't know if you i don't know if we should fast forward that far or uh, let's let's wait till we get later. there yeah okay. I, I definitely want to hear it but i would kind of as much as possible yeah. move along in sequence who opened for hendrix uh, Fat Mattress, Noel Redding's band. Okay. Uh, Soft Machine had opened some of the other shows, plus Fat Mattress, but uh, this was, and this is when, you know, Noel was getting a little testy with Jimmy and vice versa, and they, they ended up splitting up about three months later. But um, it, it was a, a fantastic experience, and to see the natural freedom that he had in the way he played um, was just astonishing. And uh, 
two things from that show that I remember was in my mind's eye, I always saw him bent over backwards on the stage holding a guitar with a blue headband going down to the stage. And it was probably two decades or more later before I ever saw color pictures of the show. And sure enough, it was exactly what I remember. Right. The other thing was I remembered he played Hear My Train coming that night that had never been released ever at that point. And it didn't ever come out for many years after that. And the second I heard it years later, I was like, that's the song he played that night. So oh, it, it, it was really a lot of indelible memories from that night really sunk in. It really changed the way I looked at everything. So young you, uh, did your parents have any issues with you, you know, pursuing the, the world of rock at a young Absolutely. age? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Later that year, I went to see uh, Janis Joplin, Joe Cocker, B.B. King, and Santana. Jesus. That was right after uh, Woodstock at mm -hmm. the uh, Quaker City Rock Festival at the Philadelphia Civic Center. Um, you know, I would, I would have to, like, beg to get to go to one of these shows because, you know, I'm 13, you know, yeah, yeah. and, like, I guess now I'd probably have even less chance of getting to go to a show like that. You'd have to wear a little helmet and little, <laughs> right. little crash pads. And... Yeah. So at that point, I was able to like at least pull the wool over their eyes or something. And then, you know, other times uh, when Hendrix came back to Philadelphia, he played at um, Temple Stadium up in Cheltenham with uh, the Grateful Dead, Steve Miller Band, and Cactus. And uh, it was a Saturday, and uh, me and my pals got together and determined we were going to go to this show. Uh, we said we were going downtown to see a movie or something, which, mm -hmm. you know, you probably wouldn't be allowed to do now anyway. But so we were off to go downtown to see a movie. We didn't know where Cheltenham was. We didn't know anything. We just like took the train downtown and started asking people, how do you get to Cheltenham? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it was... Uh, but you made it. <laughs> yeah, I, I made it. I've had, I've had a lot of crazy concert experiences, you know, coming out of the spectrum at, at 15 with like no ride home like okay now i have to get home from the spectrum how am i going to do this you know i mean just bizarre stuff but i mean i was i was obsessed with rock and roll uh i've i've seen i've seen literally thousands of bands um very very few i could think of that i missed i i miss seeing morrison with the doors um and uh i miss seeing free I would have liked to have seen Free, but anybody else, you, you can pretty much name them, and I saw them at least once. So and everybody was, was coming through Philly on a pretty regular basis. Yeah, yeah, there was a, a lot of bands always always hit Philly. The Spectrum was uh, I was I was a sad sad old man the day they tore the Spectrum down because I love that place. You didn't get one of the seats. Nah. Nice seats. Well, oh yeah, actually I did. You do. I wanted to. I got one of the folding seats because I was like, "This could be the seat I stood on at that Hendrix right, yeah, show." Yeah. So I got one. I use it to practice guitar, and it's my it's my music chair. Nice. So, uh, yeah, it was it was a great rock hall. It really was. Did you have any interest in the the burgeoning drug culture that came along with uh, the '60s rock explosion? In, in no, not really. I didn't have any more exposure to that uh, beyond you know like. Tr people trying to score pot or whatever, and it really wasn't that prevalent around. An interesting thing in high school for me was that, um, I guess we would have been the equivalent of stoner kids, you know? I mean, like the kids who were really into rock and had our hair long and were going to see, you know, Alice Cooper, Billion Dollar Babies tour, whatever. But somehow, 
all the jocks became very fascinated with the rock kids. And therefore, during this like brief period, all the jock kids were hanging with the rock kids and all going to the spectrum together to these shows and to mm -hmm. parties and everything. And it, it was really interesting because it, it that certainly didn't carry over later when, you know, like the frat punks would come into the scene, you know, later, like it just, yeah, it, yeah. It just wasn't working, you mm -hmm. know, but this was a very honest curiosity about each other, which uh, was, was a, a fascinating thing, probably that was around 73, 74. Mm -hmm. So maybe no one else cares about this, but I'll, I'll ask you because it's of interest to me, but were you ever into progressive rock? Oh yeah, oh, okay, of course. Because right, I've always been very into Prague, and most people, or many people, seem to hate it. So it's always. Oh no, no! I I, I saw uh, King Crimson. I, one of the great things, Joseph, about the um, shows back then is is you would see a bill that would be Jay Giles Band, Humble Pie, King Crimson. You know, mm -hmm. um, I saw T Rex, Ma Vishnu Orchestra, and the Mark Allman Band. Like these just crazy bills that mm -hmm. that now you know they would never. Put that kind yeah, because everything needs to be very tightly compartmentalized because you know based upon your haircut and how tight your pants are or whatever exactly you know, which of these bands you accept yeah and then all the rest you will summarily dismiss yeah so I mean I, I was very much into Crimson uh, very much into the original lineup of Genesis um, uh, saw Genesis many times with Gabriel saw the Lamb tours a few times. Um, have you seen the musical box? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wasn't too thrilled with it. I saw them do uh, The Lamb at the Keswick in 2012, I guess it was. And um, wrote a, a, on my blog, my music blog, I wrote a, kind of a review of it and got some flack from some of the more devoted followers of the musical box. I mean, I appreciate what they're doing, and thank God they're doing it. Uh -huh. But... Um, there, there was like an aggression to the way Rutherford played bass in Genesis that I thought was kind of missing. I thought it felt like they were being a little too careful to try to do it right, mm -hmm. as opposed to when you saw Genesis, they were just doing it, you know, yeah. and it just kind of happened. But, it's, it's a very weird box for a band to put themselves into to exactly replicate a band that preceded them, yeah. which, I mean, I don't even know that any of those people necessarily even saw Genesis with Peter Gabriel. I don't imagine, I don't know their ages, they may have even been old enough to have seen that. Well, my, my primary interest in seeing them do The Lamb was because, you know, they got access to all the visuals that, that Genesis had used on those tours. And I really wanted to see, again, going back to memories of shows decades before, I wanted to see, I had this vision of my head of the, the end of that line of the children with needles and pins, you know. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, I remembered an image of like a baby in blood with needles and i was like did i actually see that and yeah and it is there yeah yeah was philly a prog town i mean i've always kind yeah. of heard that there was it it almost seems kind of weird to me because there's a certain you know it's very much a sports town and there's a lot of dudery in philadelphia yeah. and the way that i perceive you know some years removed from it progressive rock is being somewhat cerebral and navel gazing and you know more artistic say than like songs about chicks and fucking and uh -huh. you know all that so how, how does that work so well in philadelphia god only knows man um i mean i remember yes got their first big thing when they opened for emerson lake and palmer on my birthday i think in 72 maybe and the yes album that had was had just come out and you know the crowd 
took to them like immediately mm-hmm. and you know since then philly's been like a yes city yeah, yeah really yeah. strange who knows yeah that who knows so i guess we'll move on into the 70s so clearly as someone who was a great lover of rock music there was no punk rock year zero for you where you like took your record collection threw it out the window or something no nah, my, my musical taste has has always expanded which is expensive and requires a lot of storage space <laughs> <laughs> i would love to see a record collection. it just keeps getting wider and wider but uh punk you know i i i read you know the british rock magazines like trouser press and was aware of nme and melody maker and all that so i knew about the sex pistols and um there as bizarre as it sounds, there was a department store called Corvettes in the King of Prussia. I remember Mall. that when I was a little kid, although the one that I went to was in South Jersey, or my parents went to. Okay. There's one down there, yeah. Well, this one had an insane import section. Like, they would get releases from England like two days after they came out. So I saw, never mind the bollocks there, within at the most a week of when it was released in England. And I'd heard so much about the band and, you know, the Grundy incident and all that. So I bought it, mm-hmm. you know, just out of curiosity. I also, I knew the names of the producer and the engineer, Chris Thomas and Bill Price, because they had done like Procol Harum's Grand Hotel and other albums like that. So I figured, well, if they're involved, it can't be complete crap. Right. And um, late one night, put it on with headphones, and I could not believe what I was hearing. I'm, I'm, the guitars were just raw and seething, but so orchestrated. And I thought that Johnny was just, I'm, I'm going like, I'm hearing one of the greatest singers in the history of rock. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the way he attacked those words, these inflections and the crazy ways he'd go up and roll in the R's and just like, I was going like, holy cow, this is unbelievable. And considering who you had seen prior to this point, it's kind of saying a lot that, you know, having seen the greats of the preceding decade that, you know, you can say this then in in 77. Yeah, and you know, I can't remember if I had seen the Ramones at that point. The first time I saw the Ramones was at a little club called Stars that Stephen Starr, who went on to open the Ripley Music Hall, and which is uh, was on South Street. And now, of course, he's probably the preeminent restaurant guy in Philadelphia. The half of the city. Yeah, and he's done, yeah, I mean, he's, he's done an incredible amount to turn the city's perception around as far as, you know, being like, I guess, a hip place for restaurants and everything. But he had a little club at 2nd and Bainbridge called Stars. It was very small. And a lot of times they'd have people like uh, Henny Youngman. I saw Henny Youngman there playing jokes with his violin. And uh, I saw the Ramones in there in this, this little tiny place. And my God, they were loud. They were so loud. And it was so amazing to see this, like, you know, one, two, three, four, and boom, in this, in this compressed small space. Yeah. I, I wish I could remember if I'd seen them before I heard uh, the Pistols. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it would have been, like, right and one came before the other by just a little bit, you right, know. Right. So at this point now, I'm I'm totally open to all this, and and I was also a big fan of Patti Smith, and uh, Patti's idea of you know everybody's empowered to create art and to and to do your thing. So now all these things are starting to swirl around, and you're starting to see 
you know, obviously, you know, the I hate Pink Floyd shirts and all that stuff. And you're starting to see this kind of backlash against these other bands that I really love. Mm -hmm. So I'm going, well, where, where, how do I feel about this? Yeah, you yeah. know, I wasn't, I wasn't throwing my, uh, my Hendrix and Yes albums out the window. I'm you glad know, to hear <laughs> kind of hanging on to it. And I thought, I also thought it was very fascinating. Uh, Pete Townsend on Quadrophenia, when he wrote that song, The Punk Meets the Godfather. Mm -hmm. That conversation was, was, Pete wrote that like about a year before there was a Sex Pistols or anything. It's like he really saw that this was going to be coming, that there was going to be a backlash against his band and all these other bands like Zeppelin and, and the mm -hmm. Stones. And he basically wrote a dialogue that played out pretty much that way, you know? Mm -hmm. That's, that's uh, I think, one of the most amazing uh, foreshadowings uh, I got to meet Pete very briefly last year. But he Is that when he was speaking at the library? Yeah, and he Hi. astounded me because I wanted to give him a copy of the book I wrote about 70s rock, and I wrote this long dedication and blah, blah, blah. And I get up to him, and I go, Pete, I really want to present you with this book. And he's looking at it, and he's frowning, and he goes, I have this book. I'm like... He goes, nah. yes, I have this book. I couldn't believe it. Nah, that's great. It, it made me forget everything else I was going to ask <laughs> yeah, yeah, him about. That would do it. So, um, so I've bought probably about 75 Who albums, and he's bought my book. So yeah, I think that, that makes it fair. Fair trade. Yeah. But um, So it, it was interesting seeing the tensions that were coming between these new bands and, and the old bands that were around. So all this, you know, everybody, you know, create your own art. And we're rising up against what's been before that was all going on. And it was, it was a very interesting, very unsettled time. And also to see how much the, uh, the record industry was, was kind of shaken by this and not really knowing how to react to it. Yeah, I guess they managed to throw out some money and put out some you know, very peculiar records that normally they wouldn't put out. Uh, yeah. Because you know, who knows who's the next Sex Pistols or the next Damned or the next Ramon. Exactly. When in doubt, throw money at it. That used to <laughs> yeah, be the... <laughs> it used to be. Yeah, I don't know if there's any money left to throw around. Yeah. But uh, it worked out well at the time. But let's talk a little bit uh, about Philadelphia at the time. So late 70s Philadelphia. Uh, were you still living with your parents or were you in town or where were you at the time? Uh, by that point, I was probably renting an, a house in Upper Darby with some friends. A guy, uh, a guy Jim Porter, who was manager of the Budco Goldman Theater at 15th and Chestnut, which was great because he used to go in and watch Apocalypse Now as many times as he wanted to. And you could time it. Like, oh, yeah, I had it down by like the scenes. Mm -hmm. So if I just wanted to see the napalm in the morning scene, <laughs> I knew to go there at like 1237. You know, great. It was great. But uh, there must be a corrosive effect of rewatching that movie like that. Yeah, it helped. It definitely helped. Um, and uh, a woman, Denise Herman, and uh, uh, gosh, I can't remember who else was in that house at different times. But um, that was also the period like when the Hot Club was open at 21st and South. And that was really uh, David Carroll ran that and Bobby Startup was, was involved with that and DJ there and had also been in a band. And uh, the bands that were coming into Philly at that time were people like the Dead Boys um, Helen Wheels, who a lot of people don't remember her. She was she was pretty tough New York like biker rock chick. Yeah, I don't know. Um, punk, definitely punkish, more Stooges like than okay. than, than otherwise. Uh, God, who else do I see there? B fifty twos. 
uh, Brian Setzer of Stray Cats was in a band called the Bloodless Pharaohs that Bobby Startup was managing. They they played there all the time, and the Stray Cats also played there. I think early when they formed, and um, you know it, it it was a cool place. You were totally out an outsider living there or going there. Uh, it was a music that that not that many people could relate to. Um, WXPN and WKDU were starting to support it. Lee Paris was was uh, in the initial phases of establishing his career on WXPN, which would later play out in a, in a relationship with with me professionally. And um, that's that's pretty much what was going on at that point. Um, right after that. Right around that time also gets back to that other date I mentioned, um, September 22nd, 79, when The Clash played at the Walnut Street Theater. That was their first visit to Philadelphia. And I had a, a poster of Give Them Enough Rope, which I hoped to like maybe get signed or something. And I walked in the door of the Walnut Street Theater that after, or of the uh, Benjamin Franklin Hotel at 9th and Chestnut that afternoon. And lo and behold, all four of them were sitting there in the lobby just talking to anybody who came up to them. Nice. So I got them to sign the poster. Everybody signed it. Strummer drew arrows to which Vulture was which member of the band <laughs> and everything. And I, I got to talking to Mick Jones. And we got around to talking about music. And I, I was telling him, he was asking about me, which I thought was interesting. And I said, you know, I had seen Hendrix and I had seen John McLaughlin. I've seen Jeff Beck and I've seen all these guitarists. And it's, I can't ever imagine being able to do it. And, and he looked at me and said, I said, I really would like to go get a guitar and learn this. And he looked at me and said, well, why don't you do it? I'm no better than you are. And it, it was like the DIY thing, like right mm -hmm. yeah, there, you're, you're being good in your head. from like my favorite punk band. I mean, The Clash had now become my favorite band, yeah. and I'm getting this direct message from Mick Jones to, yeah. to do this. So I did, and um, I know Mick played a Les Paul. I went out and bought a Telecaster because I had my Joe Strummer fixation. But uh, and then I just started learning, and I, I found a place that sold. Uh, never mind the Bullocks and the first Clash album, Songbooks. Didn't have any guitar tablature in it where you see which string it is and all that. It was mm -hmm. musical notes. So I Could had you read? No. Music? Oh, oh God, yeah. no. So I had to figure out what the musical notes meant so I could figure out what the chords were mm -hmm. so I could translate that into like basic bar chords so I could begin to like make some sound. And were you taking lessons at the same time? No, no, never. So this was all just you trying to figure it yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, trying to figure it out. And um, I guess around this time was when I moved into uh, downtown Philadelphia, uh, living on uh, Rodman Street at 15th and Rodman, which at that time was it was a terrible neighborhood, really bad. I mean, you'd, you'd hear drunks at night and open the window and you'd see some guy standing there kicking a kitten or like some woman getting beaten up and you'd be like calling the cops and we got robbed. It was a double trinity and I was in the back bedroom, nobody else was there and I heard these noises in the front and I knew Jim wasn't home. Uh -huh. So I came down the stairs like banging this Bored, just like trying to make as much noise as I could, yeah. and saw him going out the door, and they had 
taken the butcher knives out of the drawer and had them on the kitchen table. So who knows? What the hell? Yeah, who knows what got averted that night? But it was a really bad neighborhood. But um, right about that time was when I got involved with David Wildman, who was at a club called Rainbows, which later became the Kennel Club, and Lee Paris and a girl named Lana Lang, who was just in town at the Ruin show this past weekend, and Denise and another girl named Ginger. And we started this group called the Swingers. Mm -hmm. um, and I still have my Swingers uh, name badge thing, but uh, S-W-I-N-G-E-R-Z, like ah, the feeders. Yeah, right. So um, the Swingers, a large, largely through the... Um, driven by David Wildman and Lee Paris. Uh, we started a fanzine and we booked uh, the Elk Center at 16th and Fitzwater, which was even worse of a neighborhood. The further south you're going, the worse things mm -hmm. are gotten. And we booked it for the Swingers Weekend and we had uh, Bauhaus, Pylon, Bunny Drums played both nights in this in this place in this elk center and it was um everybody there of course was african-american and they 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 were totally amused by us you know <laughs> they thought we were like really funny like these crazy looking kids like spiked hair and yeah. whatever you know they thought we were really entertaining and uh the room it was a big room held probably about 700 or so on the first floor and then down the basement was like a big bar and you know big it almost looked like you're walking into a cafeteria or something and you know they did not really care who was buying drinks because they were making money selling drinks right, right. So, so underage kids whatever yeah, yeah yeah so that that show got off and went went very well nobody got killed amazingly um, happy to hear that <laughs> but uh after that i believe michael mcgettigan who had been in a very early version of the stickman contacted Denise and Lee and and me about a club called Omnis at Ninth and Walnut. And the owner, supposedly this guy Al, had been not making any money there and was pretty much desperate to try anything. And Michael encouraged us to go down to talk to Al about doing shows there. So Lee, uh, Lee was an amazing character. Lee, Lee was a very different guy privately, but his public persona was he was like Alan Freed in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. I mean, he could, he could sell you on anything. And his radio show on WXPN was like so influential. And Lee and Denise and I went down and met with Al and pretty much Lee convinced Al to let us take over Omnis. Mm -hmm. And we called our organization New Regime and basically just started booking bands in there. And the, the, the bands that we booked ranged early on from bands like Bush Tetras and uh, some of the New York like No Wave bands and then extended on to the first Philadelphia shows of bands like Dead Kennedys and DOA. So this is what, 1980s? 80, 80, okay. 80, 81, 82, I think, was the period that Omnis was open. 
And then on the nights bands weren't playing, Lee and I would split DJing. Some nights he'd do it, some nights I'd do it. And, you know, it, it worked great. Uh, the, the woman behind the bar was this African-American woman, Jane, who had like, she was so intimidating. I mean, she was like the classic, like, black exploitation movie uh-huh. bartendress. And like people were scared to death of her, you <laughs> right. know. But she was like so sweet to us. She was she was really nice. Um, eventually, Omni's caught on fire and, and burned down. And uh, there's questions about whether it was an insurance fire. Or right, Philadelphia. Surely that cannot be the case. And we mm-hmm. managed to get we managed to talk the uh, fire people into letting us go in and climb up to the DJ booth, which probably was insane because it could have come collapsing down to get our vinyl out i Didn't still melt. no well a lot of it it's all it's all you can tell my omnis records because the, the the cardboard's all warped on them mm-hmm. but uh, a lot of them survived so uh they're they're uh interesting artifacts of that yeah i'm sure you can still smell you know the, the memories <laughs> on them yeah, probably <laughs> but um also in that period uh at omnis was when I got introduced to some kids from Northeast Philadelphia who were looking to start a punk band. They were known by a band called The Excuses who were from Delaware County. They were a very good band. Um, and they introduced me to these guys and it was a singer, Joe Stack, and uh, two other guys, a bass player and a drummer, alleged bass player and drummer. And, of course, by this point, I had learned enough chords that, that I was really anxious to, to pursue the idea of getting a band together. And uh, we met in uh, 1981, summer of 1981, and uh, had our first practice up at Joe's house up in uh, August of 81. And that was the... the foundations of informed sources mm-hmm. uh we of course ended up with different bass player two different bass players and uh three drummers over our lifetime but we we installed new rhythm section pretty quickly at mm-hmm. that point but that was the uh the really the tentative first steps of the band at that point 81. did you want a recording uh, yeah we uh we we got a guy brian lee was our second bass player. Brian now lives in Florida and is, um, excuse me, a remarkable like oceanic athlete. And uh, our second drummer was Doug Mosco, who I, I still work on projects with to this day. And we we pretty quickly went to this studio, Fresh Tracks, that we learned about through uh, the band Pretty Poison, through Jade Starling with Pretty Poison. And it was uh, on Cheltenham Avenue, uh, pretty inexpensive, uh, Larry Spivak, the engineer there, it was a little hesitant about, not maybe not hesitant, but maybe a little slow to understand. We wanted the guitars to sound really overdriven and insane. Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't looking for note articulation and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. We did more sessions there over the years, eight and 16 track sessions. And by then he knew, you know, what we wanted and how to do it. And we got some pretty good stuff out of it. The, the first four songs we did that would definitely have a, have a charming amateurish appeal. Oh, nice. But I mean, they're, they're on the, the Informed Sources CD that, that came out last year. Who know? put out the CD? Uh, I did. 
Okay. Yeah, we just figured like let's self-distribute it through uh, through CD Baby. We'd had we'd had other labels that were interested over the years, and it was just it just seemed easier to have the control and and to be able to just get it out ourselves. So, so for someone who's not heard the recordings, are there certain bands that that are sort of clear influences, or does it kind of fall into you know a particular sort of punk or hardcore? Well. You know, that's kind of hard to say. I think early, there's much more of a, a Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols influence on my own playing, at least. And uh, the, the, the strummer's rhythm approach and all that. Um, we, as, as time went on, you know, the, band, the band's lifespan was, was pretty brief, but a lot happened in those three years. Um, you know, we, we went from... Philadelphia being the sadistic exploits and all those bands and everybody having you know having been influenced very much by the British punk bands and also by the Ramones into the emerging hardcore scene you know we we played with the Bad Brains and you know all these people and then as time went on we played with Black Flag and we played with Flipper and we played with um, X and you know all these other bands so the the whole hardcore thing had come up full bloom by that point and you know the music changed uh i personally never really felt um that bound by the rules of what was going on i mean we we definitely experimented with faster velocities as that whole thrash kind of thing came in but we also uh, weren't afraid to do like slower material. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I don't. I really don't know how to describe our stuff. I mean, we were considered punk, and we were booked with those bands, and you know, we, we didn't have people throwing stuff at us. And when we headlined, we would draw, you know, a pretty full house. And so whatever we were doing was working, and we were drawing the same kids who would be at a Black Flag show were coming to see us, and mm -hmm. we're digging it. So I think you know. I mean, it's almost like Flipper, Flippers consider a California punk band with Black Flag and Dead Kennedys and so-and-so, but they, they don't sound No, they don't sound like anything. Yeah. yeah, they sound like Flipper. So I think it's, it's maybe kind of like that. We were more melodic than Flipper. Um, you know, I always tried to bring a sense of, not like pretty melodies, but, you know, a, a sense of, of some songwriting craft to the material and try to make the chords go in kind of interesting directions, but still have that energy and that edge. So um, hopefully it succeeded. You mm -hmm. know, it's, it's hard to tell. So uh, I'm always interested in, in the sort of sea change that comes about as the more hardcore bands kind yeah. of come onto the scene. So in Philadelphia, do you, did you feel that there was a, any kind of a shift between you know, these bands coming from late yeah. 70s, early 80s into early 80s? Definitely. And, and I'll tell you, I, I got a big fast forward on this because by this time I was friends with, with Joe Biafra. And when Biafra would be out on the road with the Dead Kennedys, he, he would be given like records, like 45s, like crazy. And somehow they usually ended up playing Philadelphia before they'd play like New York or North Jersey or somewhere like that. So Biafra would, would usually stay with me. How did you get to? How did you come to know him? Uh, we booked Dead Kennedys at Omni's, and I spent the day with them. Uh, Denise Herman and I spent the day with them. We went down to South Philly and did like improvised photo sessions, and just kept in touch after that. So when Biafra would would 
leave to go, you know, a couple do a couple shows, and then they were doing New York or something. He'd leave all the forty fives with me and mm-hmm. let me tape them all. Oh, nice. So I I knew about SOA and you know Henry Rollins and the Idle Teens and like all these these bands that were coming out of DC uh, before the infamous uh, show at the Starlight Ballroom where Black Flag played. Were you at that show? Yeah, yeah, I was at that show. I got kicked in the head by Henry when he sang his last show with SOA about an hour before he sang his first show with Black Flag. And um, it, was, uh, it, was an, uh, it was a crazy night that had repercussions later on because the DC crew came up from, from DC before that show and the Philly punks still had a very British vibe to them. You know, that was still sadistic exploits and, you know, like Robbie exploit looked very British. So and, like leather jackets and yeah, spiky hair. Brian Lathrop, um, I hope I'm not insulting you, Brian, looked, might have had a certain visual parallel to someone who doesn't know any better to Billy Idol. Mm-hmm. When Billy Idol was seeing with Generation X, not the solo Billy Idol, yeah, White yeah. Wedding and all that crap. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, it turned into a very ugly scene. Um, there were fights everywhere. Um, so you think that the DC people were sort of announcing, like, we are the now, the present, and, you know, you people yeah. are like dinosaurs yeah. from the past, you know, one year, two years past. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 10 minutes ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> Clock struck 12, so you're in the past. Um, and yeah, and... Um, they kind of came in and went like, well, we're taking over this area. Well, then they also got into it with some of the Kensington kids. Bad idea. The neighborhood. And um, it, there was some stompings and, and stuff that went on, and not just the fights between the two groups of punks and everything. So who came out the worst in that situation between Kensington and D.C.? I'd say the D.C. kids pretty much got chased back. And... Actually, you know, I researched this pretty closely when I was writing the liner notes for the Informed Sources CD. And obviously you can't, CD art is horrible for this kind of stuff. So I wrote a giant PDF illustrated with images, which anybody can go get at www.frankblankmusic.com. And you can buy the CD while you're there too. But anybody can go there and look at the gallery of all the images that are there and the liner note PDF is there. And that goes into a real accounting, including some quotes from witnesses from the DC kids. So it's a, it's a pretty interesting historical document. Like it's not, not just the history of informed sources. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I could speak rather than me go and try to remember details from it, I just suggest check that out. Yeah, yes, yeah. It's got good. some really funny quotes from these mm-hmm. DC kids who are just horrified by some of the Philly kids on the street. Like, like, like these, these people are Neanderthals. Yeah, like, yeah the Kensington types, I mean, it's kind of a consistent, yeah. <laughs> there's a consistency moving through Kensington. Maybe, maybe somewhat less now as other people have been infiltrating it, but I know the type and I can see DC kids, uh, yeah. especially probably not inner city DC kids, but like affluent, suburbs my parents are either professors or you know involved in the government yeah kids yeah so um and you know there had been peaceful shows there already uh like uh, the go-go's had opened for x at at the starlight 
And, you know, there really hadn't been any trouble, but it was when these DC kids came in, like, you know, we're hardcore and, like, fuck you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was when the trouble started. So there, there was not another show there until the ill-fated... Uh, the Dead Kennedy Show? Dead Kennedy Show. Yeah. And we were on that bill. And I remember Steve Fritz was, was largely promoting that show. Steve Fritz was a guy who ran a magazine called Terminal Magazine. Steve just recently died. And I kept saying to Steve, this is a real bad idea, a real bad idea. And he's like, no, Biafra is like 100% behind it. So I called Biafra and I'm like, look, Jello, man, this, like, you, don't, you have no idea what you're getting into. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he loved the idea of like confrontation or, you know, like out of control, like what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah but there's not going to be Ed Meese in the audience, you know. There's going to be some Kensington <laughs> Cro-Magnon. Yeah, so... Um, Excuse me, Jello's. Jello's like, no, we're going on with the show. It's going to happen. So <laughs> I like the impersonation. Yeah, I still remember it. Um, I talked to him a couple times, actually, going like, come on, reconsider, baby. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, no, we're off, we're up there. So um, the Kensington kids see this activity. Now they don't know DC kid, DC punks from Philly punks. From any punks. All they know is the guys that we had to stomp last time are back yeah, at this stupid place. These faggots are back in our neighborhood. They didn't learn their fucking lesson. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Well, they started getting into the ballroom. I, I, think, I think autistic behavior got through their set before anything really started. But we, when we were on... I can remember just looking out, and you just saw fights going on, like, all over the floor. Why do you think that the club was allowing these people in? Because clearly they weren't they were They were bum-rushing in. Oh, okay, yeah. I mean, they, they were, like, they were starting to circulate around the outside and starting to surround the place. And people were starting to have trouble getting into the show. It sounds like a Western. Yeah, it really was. And so me, I like, like, I'm, I'm like really pissed off that this is going on and you know, I, I don't like it. And so in my best Keith Richards at Altamont, you know, like grabbing the microphone, like Keith going like, Hey, if that cat doesn't stop that man, we're not going to play. You know? And it worked really well for them. So clearly it worked well for you. Yeah. Mick's like, who's fighting and what for? So, you know, it, it just didn't stop. So I was like, screw this. I'm, I'm out of here. You know, so we got off the stage, and I'm up in the dressing room. Uh, Jade Starling was there. Biafra's in there. Steve Fritz is in there. David Carroll, from who had run the hot club, was there. And we start hearing, like, M80s and explosions going off outside. Mm-hmm. And the, the Kensington kids now have organized and are making a full-on assault of the building. So now we've got the dressing room doors barricaded. And I'm looking at the offer like, are you happy now? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Finally got what he wanted. So they eventually got things calmed down enough outside that we, we opened up the dressing room again and the dead Kennedys went on. And, and this is actually on YouTube. You can actually see it. The offer comes out and um, says, you know, well, you know, after the show, don't leave the building till we can figure out how we're going to get everybody out of here. You know, great strategy. That. Yeah. I guess there's no calling the police because they're not necessarily going to be sympathetic. Yeah, please to... didn't give a damn, you yeah. know, like whatever. Yeah. And um, 
and then Biafra pretty much right half right into the first song got pretty much knocked out by East Bay Ray turning around hitting him in the head. No, so, I feel like I killed by friendly fire. Yeah, so this is all on YouTube. You can enjoy that. Oh, and Biafra also started out with a huge rant against Lee Paris. Uh, Biafra had for some reason become a bitterly, bitterly. He hated Lee Paris. For what reason? I have absolutely no idea. Some perceived thing at Omni that made it look like the Dead Kennedys were being marketed, which Biafra like, didn't like. Mm-hmm. And somehow I escaped the wrath directed at Lee, although I didn't escape his wrath when he walked in my apartment. I had like three pennants from the Philadelphia Eagles hanging up. And he goes, oh, ah, oh, the National Football League, huh? <laughs> you know, like, sorry, Jello. Yeah, you don't need God to condescending to you. <laughs> God. But, um, so, you know, eventually everybody got out of the starlight and survived, but it, it, it was a fiasco. It really was. And it was, um, it was one of the more bizarre incidents of that whole period of time. And that was it for that starlight. Yeah. 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 yeah it was probably justifiably so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine where you go from there. Burn yeah. the place down with everybody inside of, of course. it. Let's leave it to the memories. <laughs> yeah. So I met at that time there were a lot of really interesting bands in Philadelphia. I suppose Ruin was was either in effect or about to be. Ruin, Ruin was about to be. Uh, at that point, I was living at Twenty Second and Walnut, and across the street from there was an AMPM mini market. And Glenn and Bosco were working in the AMPM mini market, mm-hmm. working at night, and um, Informed Sources was well underway by then. But they. Glenn especially was talking about this project, Ruin. And I, I'm i pretty sure he gave me some demo tapes that I could take back to my apartment, listen to, and bring back to to the market and go, right. like, that's cool. And he, they had the logo. And they were, you know, obviously Damon, his brother, was on board. And they, they, were, they were right at, at the point where it's time for us to start putting something together. Mm-hmm. And uh, also around then were, was autistic behavior. Sadistic exploits had, was probably towards the end of their lifespan at that point. Uh, Bunny Drums was around then. Uh, they were more of an experimental guitar and electronics kind of band, more like Tuxedo Moonish kind of. But like Tuxedo Moon crossed with the Stooges almost. Did uh, they play on punk bills? They did some punk bills, and, um, you know, we played with them. Um, we played with them. The last Informed Sources show was, was with uh, Bunny Drums. Uh, the Stickmen were around at the time. A very uh, frenetic funk. James Brown, Sly Stone, through this warp prism. Uh, with with these oversized personalities of Pete Baker and Beth Ann Lehman. Um, Were they also playing on punk bills? Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> we played with them also. And then Beth and her friend Sky had a spin-off band. Um, Jeez, uh, don't tell me. I can't remember the name. I just thought of it like five seconds ago. Well, we'll get back to that. With the guy that Frank Carroll, Franny Carroll on bass and... Um, we we played with them, um, and there were there were really a, a lot of interesting bands, um, not just following in, in 
punk stuff. I mean, there were there were other punk bands coming up, like Seeds of Terror, Decontrol, of course, who, who are still, you know, a force to be reckoned with to this day. Um, you mentioned Why Die was around. Yeah, Why Die. Yeah, Why Die. And um, just just all these bands, you know, and, and the shows. This was when, you know, we were first starting to see the BYO come up and it, w- it was working that like places like the Love Club and East Side Club were, were more, I guess, organized and standard club kind of experiences where the shows put on by kids were more chaotic maybe, but also in a way like more, more interesting and exciting. There was a, there was a lot Were you drawn on. to the, the shows put on by the, the kids? Yeah, I mean, we we played several of them. Well, how um, old were you at, at this time? Oh, good lord! <laughs> All right, give me a minute to extrapolate the math. Just under thirty. Okay, so I mean, did you feel like you were a part of the kids, or did you feel that there was any kind of a generational a gap between you at just before thirty and the you know the, the BYO folks or the people doing those types of shows? No, no, really didn't. Um, I, I'll tell you something. I've I've always had a, a hard time with age. Um, like to me, even though Jimi Hendrix died at 27 and I'm now 57, I still see him as a guy older than me in mm-hmm. my head. And I'm real bad at looking at people and going like, that's a person in their 30s. Or that's a person in their 40s. Mm-hmm. It, it really doesn't... It really doesn't resonate with me so i think with when we were around these like younger kids like the better youth organization and all that i I don't think i would have even gone like oh that's a little kid you know yeah It, it wasn't like that you know it was like everybody was so into all this music and there was such a community of scene that it it just had like its own kind of momentum and it would be like, you know, if everybody went to a movie theater and there were all different ages at the movie theater, it was like... The, yeah, they were united by that experience. Yeah. I guess if you're around people who are genuinely creative and active, you know, you're going to be the type of person who's drawn to them and you're not going to be thinking about them being older or younger because it's really kind of, what are they doing? Yeah. You know, what is their output? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But, um, you know, I mean, we... We, we were always... I, I wrote most of the lyrics for the band and I... I didn't like bands. I, I, I've really always had a problem with bands that are like funny. Like I, I, I've always taken my rock like real seriously, even though I guess some of it's kind of ridiculous if you look at some of the more extreme progressive bands and some of their lyrics or whatever. But they were trying to be funny, and I, I don't like, like. I've never really liked Frank Zappa. I don't like that "Don't Eat the Yellow Snow" and all that stuff. And I saw writing punk lyrics as a way to uh, communicate a lot of the things that were going on politically in the world at that point because people now, like younger kids now, are probably less aware of the the, the fact that you could be like annihilated in in a matter of seconds. Mm -hmm. And in that era, I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid, probably about seven years old, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. And, you know, at that age, you don't understand everything that's going on. But you're looking at the TV and you're seeing Kennedy, President Kennedy and, and 
the Secretary of Defense, McNamara, and these guys, and you're, you're picking up, like, these guys are talking about something really heavy because they look grim, and your parents would be kind of quiet. And, you know, I mean, we, we really, we were really right on the brink of, of like, cooking everything right mm -hmm. then. Yeah, I can sort of relate to, I mean, I'm several years younger than you, but growing up in early 80s, under mm -hmm. the threat of USA and USSR, where there was a thought that there was going to be nuclear war. Absolutely. So there's the day after and threads and you know, I was seeing all these things as a kid where exactly. I was like, this is going to happen any day now. You know, the nuclear clock is moving towards 12. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's exactly <laughs> what we were really writing about in informed sources or I was writing about at that point was, you know, the whole idea of the mutually assured destruction. And I'll never forget reading this, this quote from this general who said that they had engineered a way to launch a third strike so after they hit us, we hit them, they hit us, we hit them, we could hit them yet again. That means we and, win, right? <laughs> and, and, he said, and he said, there may not be anybody alive, but by God, we're going to shake some dust. <laughs> and you're going like, what? You know, I mean, it, it, it was just, it was, and it, it was no joke, you know? I mean, it was like... Yeah, it sounds absurd, but that person's <laughs> yeah. not making a goddamn joke. Yeah. Do you want any more of the uh, kombucha? No, nah, I'm fine, I thanks. can't believe you're actually drinking it. <laughs> um, just something different. But, you know, I mean, it, 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 was, it, was a, it was a pretty scary period of time. And, you know, that we, we had uh, one of our songs was called Dense Pack, which was about the, the Dense Pack missiles that Reagan kept referring to as peacekeepers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of our songs was The Final War. Uh, we had a song called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner about 1984 is here. Um, and you know, there were some songs were, were more abstract and, and were not overtly political, but there was a, a, a base of them that were and, and justifiably so, because I mean, really punk rock is kind of protest music, you know? Yeah, I, I see it exactly the same way. I mean, even if those songs seem somewhat dated now, I think that as a means of conveying ideas, especially in a pre-internet age to other young people, I think it was really crucial. And I would agree that a lot of funny music comes over as being really disposable mm -hmm. you know like the joke isn't necessarily funny and it just makes it seem trivial whereas if you're expressing an idea passionately even so many years on i think people kind of clue into that passion because it is really saying something rather than like a dumb joke yeah you know, i like from, fans of like the vomiting skinheads or like a name like that i'd just be like oh my god yeah you know, I, don't, I don't have time for this you know I'd at least be serious about what you're doing but that's probably, I was probably like a grumpy old fart at 30, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whatever, <laughs> whatever. So after Informed Sources, what, did you go on to other bands after yeah, that? Yeah, after Informed Sources, uh, we... Well, actually, let me interrupt sure. you like, What was the reason for the demise of the band, and then what on? Oh, it, it was personality stuff. Um, uh, Brian Lee left the band right after we played the first punk festival at the Elk Center. Uh, right before the second show, which was Bad Brains at the Elk Center, right before the first, second, you know, big punk show at the Elk Center. I guess it, it must be fucking amazing to be playing with the Bad Brains at, at that time. Well, we'd already played with them, actually. We played with them on Christmas night of 82, I believe, or 81. Christmas night 81 at the Eastside Club. And, you know, I knew who they were from, I knew Pay to Come. I knew that single. Mm -hmm. uh, the Roar cassette had not yet come out. And but I knew they were they were pretty strong and we were at Soundcheck Christmas afternoon and uh, standing there and 
you know, we did our sound check and then the Bad Brains came out and did theirs and they essentially played like they were playing in front of an audience. HR's flipping through the air. Did they have the, the dreads? Yes. I mean, it, it was it was a full force Bad Brains show for me standing Jesus like Christ. six feet out from the stage looking at them going, holy shit, I would not want to follow this. <laughs> no. Uh, it, it was just intimidating. Did you get a contact high from the smell of that dreadlocks? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah, the air changed. Yeah. Things took a turn for something. <laughs> for the green. Yeah. But um, Brian uh, had left the band right before that, and we got Dave Gaiman, who was our bass player for the rest of the band's existence. And then in uh, in late 82, Doug, had, Doug Mosco, the drummer, left. He uh, went on to become an electronic specialist in the Air Force. And we got Scott Kishlow. Um, to play drums through through Beth Van Lehman from uh, the Stickmen, and uh, Sky was was an explosive drummer, like really. Doug Doug was a great rock and roll drummer. Sky was like a bomb going off, mm -hmm. and we we picked up a lot of speed with Sky down in the engine room. But you know there were just personality differences going on. I think Joe, the singer, and I had some falling out fallings out. And we pretty much knew this one show we did at a club called Phillies uh, you know, at a benefit for WXPN was going to be the last show. And um, we did the show. Then there's pictures of it on that website. And um, that night I played an encore with, uh, with Bunny Drums, a cover of uh, Link Ray's Switchblade. And, you know, I had... Uh, Funny Drums had been very, very dear friends, and they were also one of my favorite bands. And they, they had done tours the United States and Europe, and had you know album out and you know singles and EPs and all that. And um, I pretty much ended up joining them uh, based on that. Uh, they, the next show they did was they took a few months off, as I recall, a couple months. And then they put together an expanded version of Bunny Drums with like two female singers and, and added me on guitar. And um, after those two shows, everybody else went and I stayed. And so Bunny Drums at that point was three guitars, mm -hmm. occasionally two guitars and synthesizer. Some other interesting instruments added in. Um, and it, it was an incredible experience for me because, as I said, this, this was one of my favorite bands. And it was more experimental than, than some of the punk bands had been and probably more technically competent. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, a very exciting thing to play clubs like Danceteria in New York and, you know, see some, some big people coming to see mm -hmm. the band. And... We were booked to do a European tour, of, I believe it was 23 shows in 27 days in 84. And we did a farewell show at Revival that, that was just one of the greatest musical experiences I've ever had. I mean, the band was so good, and, and the drummer at that time was this guy, Bobby Williams, and his father was a, was a jazz musician, and he came up to us and just said, man, you guys are just on and then the entire tour fell through 10 days before we were going to leave what what happened 
there was uh, some kind of business thing going on between the guy who ran the record label that they were on and another band, and it just completely collapsed. And so uh, those guys at that point had been working hard for years and had you know toured and all that, and they just went like, screw it, that's it, we're done. So it must have been very disappointing for you. It was it was horribly disappointing because yeah. I was so excited playing with them and I loved playing with them and you know the original material was was interesting and getting more complex and longer and they could also do like furious covers of like TVI and, and <laughs> things like that. So all of a sudden I'm without a band and I just didn't have the energy to you know I I. I'd run a band for three years and written all the material and booked the band and, and tried to get records out. And, you know, at that point, trying to get a record done was, you know, you recorded it at one place and you had to get it pressed at another and mastered at another. You had to find somebody else to do the art. You had to find mm -hmm. a distributor. It wasn't like you go to disc makers now and yeah. upload an MP3 and the next day they're like, here's your CD. Yeah. So it, it was, you know... It, it was just, I just looked at everything that was involved, and I, I actually stopped playing guitar for a number of years. I just was just tired, and I didn't have the energy to, to pick it back up. What were you doing in terms of work and, and, and living? Uh, then, as now, I was working in information technology, a computer programmer then, working with like COBOL early programming languages, and now I do uh, internet development okay. for a nonprofit. And, um, you know, I, I got involved into writing, and, you know, t towards the period that I was in Bunny Drums, I was music columnist for Philadelphia City Paper, and I got, I did an article for City Paper about NASCAR racing, and um, on Dale Earnhardt's crew chief, Kirk Shelmerdine, was from Delaware County, and he grew up in that street racing culture down around the airport down there, and along Front Street. And I thought it was a very interesting thing that this guy from Philadelphia had ended up in this southern sport. Mm -hmm. And when I went to a race to interview him and everything, I got fascinated by that. And I saw that there really weren't any good books about, you know, this, this culture and this world. So I got involved with that and I ended up doing a number of books about racing and motorsports and automotive development programs and then did some books about music and 70s rock and, and things like that and um, really wasn't playing music for quite a while and then probably in the late 80s I started playing guitar again. I, I picked up a used copy of the guitar magazine and saw that guitar tablature had, had arisen where you could see what the chords and, and what a solo looked like across the fretboard mm -hmm. and got interested in that and started playing. And so I got the idea of doing a concept album about the alien intervention on Earth. And is this a perceived like a genuine intervention or is this more of a science fictional concept? That's you tell me, Joseph. <laughs> I don't know, you tell me. Um, right. I, I've I've always been very interested in unidentified flying objects and the possibility I mean, there's gotta be life out there, you know, and there's gotta be some civilizations more advanced than we are. God, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere. Amen, brother. Yeah. <laughs> but um, 
I, I was fascinated by that. So I thought, like, let's let's put this together. And I created a band called Third Stone Invasion. And uh, it was a metal band. Uh, when when the album came out, it got we got compared to Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin very positively. Why did you choose to use that as the sort of the musical means of conveying the the idea? Was it, was it you know because it was heavy metal was particularly popular at the time? Were you very into it? I, I was into it. I was into bands like Sepultura, uh, who were bringing like Brazilian percussive elements into metal and, mm-hmm. and things like that, and uh, Pantera, and some of these like really interesting metal bands. It was that was a pretty fertile period for metal then, and. Um, we put Third Stone Invasion together. Uh, Doug was out, out of the Air Force then. He, he became drummer, and I partnered with another guy. Rick Farnkoff was the other guitarist, and we had Bill Woolley on bass, who's around, and a guy, uh, Mitchell Mercurio, who did effects and sound effects and tape manipulations and things. And we signed with a label called Jaybird Records, and Jaybird was determined to leverage the internet to market their product. So we signed with them along with Billy Squire, John Entwistle from The Who, and uh, Andrew Gold and, and some other people, and um, recorded this concept album. I wrote this concept album really with the idea of quadrophenia in my head, that, that this whole thing's going to flow from one track to another and be connected by these vignettes. And, and it, it was a very proggy idea. Yeah, I'm it, into it, it. Well, it was, baby. So we, we did this thing over a period of months, and I'm, I'm still to this day tremendously proud of it. Um, it, it, was, it was an incredible process to be able to be spending the time I lost $5,000 doing it, but I got to be in a 16-track studio working with this thing. We, we realized the vision. We had a video for it. We flew out to Las Vegas and drove out to Area 51, which I'd been to several times before, and I knew a guy out there called Glenn Campbell, not that Glenn Campbell, but <clears throat> Glenn ran the Area 51 Research Center out in Rachel, Nevada, which is in the middle of absolutely nowhere. So Glenn helped me with how to get to this last mountain peak where you could see into Area 51. Mm-hmm. So Mitchell and I hiked all the way up there carrying all of this video gear and everything. We filmed up there. We filmed on the dust road that you always see on things about Area 51 that goes up to the gate. Mm-hmm. We went down to the gate. You've got to know that where the signs are, you can't walk up and read the signs that warn you because they put the signs six feet inside the base so that if you walk up to the sign, they can arrest you, mm-hmm. all that stuff. I and mean, you, you've got to know what you're doing to not get in trouble out there. But um, we filmed a video that went with that, put the whole thing out, and Jay Bird was just about a year too early to really leverage the the internet in this mm-hmm. distribution and sales thing people just weren't quite ready for you know amazon was still kind of new so what is this like 97 did, this was the early you, 90s oh early 90s yeah, yeah. yeah. okay yeah. Yeah. yeah so uh you know we played a couple gigs <laughs> around but you know it it just wasn't viable and um 
that project ended. Then I went on with, with Rick and Doug, with another singer, with Freddie Pompey, who sang with Immaculate Hearts and or originally sang with the Vile Tones in Toronto. And we put together an atmospheric blues band. Two guitars, bass, or two guitars, drums with brushes, and Freddie singing. The guitar is very clean, a lot of reverb, wide open, and heavily influenced by Angelo Badalamenti and David Lynch. Mm -hmm. That whole kind of Twin Peaks kind of sound. Right. Got that done. Two sets of original material. Freddie kind of wigged out. That killed that band. Then uh, the next band was a project called Renegade Frequency, which was kind of based on, kind of influenced under a template of Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Mm -hmm. Just these two guitars just like distorted and just kind of going for five minutes, ten minutes, however. But it, it kind of lost its path uh, doing that. And uh, so that one went down the drain. Then uh, Rick and I now were down to just each other, and we did a duo thing one electric guitar, me and him on acoustic guitar, and did a, uh, I guess it was almost like singer-songwriter-like, but it's still like kind of a punkish kind of influence. Are you singing on this? I did sing some of the songs. Rick, Rick sang most of them. I sang like, he probably sang two-thirds. I probably sang one-third. I don't like singing, but I do it when I have to. Or I approximate singing when right. I have to. Yeah, fair enough. But, um, so we put out an EP of that Black Blank, that was called. The, the Blank, uh, where does the Blank come from? I got it from Eno, Brian Eno, okay. uh, uh, Blank Frank, okay, all, yeah. the, all those years ago, yeah, on the yeah. first Eno album after he left Roxy. That amazing record. Appropriated that name. Yeah. So did, was that your sort of nom de punk? Yeah. I mean, do you use that on all of your creative projects? I, I do now. Uh, I did not use it during Third Stone Invasion. I did not use it in Renegade Frequency or um, Holler and Goat, which was the Atmospheric Blues project. Um, but then Rick and I were trying to come up with a name, and we were using Six String Mystics, and we didn't really like that. And then he had played early in his career as Richard Black, and I was Frank Blank, so we thought, well, we'll call it Black Blank. So we did that. That ended, uh, that ended, I was about to start to get really into ambient music and looping and, you know, the world of like Bill Frizzell, who I just saw last night and all those guys and some of the more experimental guitar innovations and, and things like that. But we had an opportunity to play Dennis McHugh's annual punk show in 2012 and this tied in with something i wanted to do if you, if you went back and looked at my to-do list for every year i make like an annual to-do list and it was always bake the informed sources tape and mix the multi-tracks mm -hmm. and this finally like lit a fire under my tail to actually get it done so I had already baked the tapes, you know, the Ampex tapes of the 70s had a, had a, and 70s and 80s had a flaw in it where the magnetic material was coming away from the backing. The tapes had to be baked essentially like in a convection oven for like 12 hours and you could play them once, maybe twice and make a digital copy. Mm -hmm. So I had a guy at a, at, a, at a restoration studio in North Jersey do our tapes and... So you don't bake at home, right? Correct. Yeah. I yeah. It smelled really horrible. Yeah. And one of the tapes had been missing. 
I got the first tapes back and did not find one of the sessions on there that, that was crucial to the band's history. Um, I had rough mix cassettes from when they were recorded, but I, I really wanted the multi-track master so that I could remix this stuff and, and make it sound better. And Doug Moscow, uh, by this point, Joe Stack, our singer, had died uh, in the 1990s, and Doug went up to his parents' house in Northeast Philadelphia, where we had originally rehearsed in the basement, and uh, talked to Joe's parents, and Joe's father went upstairs and came down with this tape. It had been water damaged. It, it was in horrible shape, and I sent it up to this guy, Steve Puntalillo, at this uh, restoration studio in North Jersey, and he called up and he said, I've got a I've got a radical procedure I can try doing on this. You know, mm -hmm. if if it works, it's going to take me a couple months. If it works, I'm only going to charge you what I would normally charge because I'm going to be learning. If it doesn't work, it's gone. Oh, yeah. Your your tape your tape is gone anyway. Mm. And he 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 saved that tape somehow. And got me those multi-track masters. So now, knowing that we were going to be doing this show late in 2012, I started, I have a 16-track uh, studio in my basement and recording software and everything. And I started doing the multi-track mixes and also archiving all the cassettes. Uh, we did radio concerts on WXPN and we had soundboard recordings from Eastside Club and City Gardens and, and all these shows and going through all these cassettes and ranking the performances and going like, you know, should this song be on here because there's a studio version of it. And in the end, we wound up with the CD broken into three segments. Uh, the first segment's all the studio material. The second segment is live and radio concerts. And the third segment is two songs that we recorded in 2012, followed by the very earliest four songs. Mm -hmm. It's called From the End to the Beginning, mm -hmm. that section. Mm -hmm. And the very last thing on there was the very first broadcast of Informed Sources on Lloyd Force's show on WKDU in August of 81, where he actually played a rehearsal tape of us. It is, you've never heard such a god-awful, <laughs> god-awful noise in your life, and that's the way the CD ends. That is I a great way to was, end it. Yeah, it was. So anyway, it was a, it was a tremendous experience doing all of this, uh, doing all of this mixing and mastering and extracting the cassette tracks and then working on them trying to make them sound a little better and then once the whole thing was done you know you do the mastering and try to make it sound as good as it can and then I had the weirdest experience in July of 2012 I finished mastering the whole thing the last song is done and my wife and I watched an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm I Larry went, was being a dick. <laughs> surprise. Uh, I went to bed, and I woke up the next morning deaf in my right ear. What, what the hell happened there? Well, at first they thought it was like congestion, and they gave me a mild steroid. And then I went to see a hearing specialist, and he put me on a mega steroid. And they thought it could either be Lyme disease, a tumor in my brain pushing on the ear canal, or a virus that had gotten into the ear canal and had impacted all the nerves, the hearing nerves in this ear. And I took this mega steroid 
and I don't know if you've ever taken a, a super stairway. No, no. It's, what is it like? It's a little like taking speed or something. I mean, you are you're wound up. So you're vacuuming the house a lot. Yeah, you're uptight. Yeah. Uh, you're snapping at people. It's um, sounds like me most of the time. Yeah, it, it was it was not a good experience. But you know what? I was at that point. I was at the point of doing the artwork and doing all the poster photography and archive stuff for the CD, and aside from my regular work. I spent almost all my time focused on doing that stuff and it really helped me get through it. And within a few weeks, a good amount of the hearing had returned, which, which was not expected. It, it was, it was uh, an unexpected thing that that much of it returned and then even more of it has returned since. I'm, I'm very fortunate to, I mean, I have tinnitus horribly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen, I've seen thousands of bands. I've played hundreds and hundreds of hours in front of like amps just blasting. Mm -hmm. And so I have ringing in my ears. I imagine you and Pete Townsend could talk about that. Yeah. I know that he has a, a terrible yeah. problem with it. I mean, I, I hear it all the time and I, I'm pretty good at ignoring it. It really doesn't bother me. I, I, I'm able to push it onto a different frequency than what I'm hearing when I'm talking to you. Yeah, I can hear it in bed at night when I'm laying in bed. Yeah, if there's silence, if there's some sort of ambient noise or speaking, I won't hear it. But yeah. And I've always been kind of very careful about earplugs, but yeah, I was. probably not as careful as I should be. Also, I, cotton doesn't really I, It doesn't do, do anything. No. I imagine it, it doesn't do anything out there. Yeah, well, people should know that. I went and got uh, musician earplugs made after that. Oh, where they mold them to your ear? Yeah, yeah and nice. um, I've used them since. I shouldn't say this. I did not use it while I played with Ruin. Bad, bad, bad. We'll oh, talk yeah. about that in a minute. But oh. um, I, I have used it at other things, and I take them to shows, and if I feel like I'm at a show where my hearing is potentially going to be damaged, like, wow, this band's loud, mm -hmm. they go in. Yeah, yeah. I wear them at any any sort of amplified music. I got, uh, my father used to work construction, so he would just give me boxes of them, because, you know, they'd be working jackhammers and stuff, and I'll bring a whole pile with me to shows, and whenever I see my friends, I'll try to convince them, please, please put these in. You really don't want to think that you lost your hearing to that band, you know, in the end. You know, I... I, I worked in a steel mill running jackhammers. I was obsessed with rock and roll. I played in a punk rock band. When I wasn't playing guitar, I was covering NASCAR. I also been around, you know, Kennedy Space Center and the space program a lot and time, times it, you know, in Florida down there. I mean, everything that I like is loud and fast. Yeah. And most of it was with no hearing protection and, you know, that's come home to roost now. Yeah. Did you ever find out what exactly was the, the problem? It was right? the nerve. It was a nerve, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I did. Much I, better than a tumor. Yeah. I did uh, go get an MRI uh, on my brain, which I have claustrophobia, like not... I'm not incapacitated, but I don't like elevators and things like that, and mm -hmm. I did not like that. Although I will say, I was very fascinated by the noises it made. Oh, the the ping, the loud, like, I did one, I did these a few times as a study, uh -huh. so I elected to do it. And uh -huh. you hear that kind of loud, they have the earplugs or the headphone, and then it's kind of like a pinging. And... Uh, it was crazy, it was like industrial music. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. So I was, I was like, fascinated by the sounds, that, that helped me. 
when I did that, uh, it was interesting in the in the drug study that I was doing. There was a, there wasn't actually a drug involved, but they would show images of people's faces expressing expressing extreme emotions. Uh, and what I was supposed to do was indicate if they were expressing some form of happiness or some form of anger or sadness. And the pictures were really old. They had come out of the 70s, and since then they had solarized. So you would have like a black woman with a giant afro like screaming at you, or a man with huge mutton chops, and he would be smiling really broadly <laughs> while you're hearing this really loud pinging in your head. And like the, the, you know, the guy would be purple or something or green. It was really a weird, so it was a very kind of like searing psychedelic image while there's this pounding in my head. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of nights I've had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Uh, a quick question about the, the UFOs. Uh, are you a science fiction guy? Yeah. Uh, through books? I mean, do you have... Yes. A, uh, who are your guys? Uh, obviously, Asimov. Uh, Philip K. Dick is a, is a great mind. Um, you know, Heinlein. I love Heinlein. Uh, just... There's, you know what? I haven't read any in a while, and I, I need to go back and reread some. But I I've read a lot of science fiction. I'm about actually to go back. I was just saying the other day I want to go back and reread 1984. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was in school, in high school, I was really interested in books like Brave New World, 1984, uh, you know, Animal Farm, like all those kind of books and these ideas of, of society maybe not being what it seems and, and mm -hmm. government control of things and that combined with the, the nuclear threats and all the stuff and, and also just growing up through that whole era of all the assassinations and everything. It, it all, you know, kind oh, of yeah, filters yeah. around in there and, and has an influence on your outlook. Yeah, th I think the dystopian uh, and some of the utopian science fiction books also had a big influence on me. I mm -hmm. really liked Harlan Ellison. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Ellison's voice, to me, always seems like very much like punk, this kind of like hectoring, aggressive, volatile madman uh -huh. who's the smartest man in the room, no matter where he is, and will destroy you. Um, and uh, yeah. And I was also um, interested in the, in the William Gibson <coughs> era when, when that whole early, mm -hmm. you know, nanotechnology and all that started coming out and the, the internal you know web in your brain that you jack into yeah and yeah oh, nice that's good to know that uh so i guess we'll we'll kind of begin to wrap it up uh recently you were the man of the hour when you performed with ruin for the a, two. Man of the a, hour. a man of the hour but uh yeah uh so how did this whole thing come about with you performing white rabbit with ruin for the reunion shows it was um i we were at the um i guess it was the strangler show at union transfer and uh glenn and Vasco were there. I guess they had the night off from the AMTM mini market. After <laughs> all these years. <laughs> and or in Harvard. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I just went up and said hi to them. You know, we hadn't seen each other for a, a long time. And um, they basically said, like, why, why don't you do a song with us? First they said, why don't you sing a song with us? And I was like, what, seriously? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it'd be like really cool. So I got Glenn's email address from Dennis and... Um, yeah, I mentioned to you I'm a long-distance runner, and I'd, I'd fractured my foot, and the day after that happened, we had to fly down to Florida, and I was down there taking my father-in-law and another guy on a tour of Kennedy Space Center, and, like, it was killing me. But I, I emailed Glenn from down there, and I was like, you know, Glenn, I'm, I'm not really a singer, mm -hmm. you know? And he was like, yeah, if you want to play guitar, sure. He goes, he goes pick a song. And, you know, what what proof 
or White Rabbit, yeah, to yeah, me, it's be one are my other. two favorite. I mean, they, I love a lot of their songs, but those two are, are incredible. And I kind of thought they'd, they'd be like, well, you know, we were going to kind of, you know. But they were like, yeah, great, absolutely. Three guitars on White Rabbit, fantastic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went down to the first practice on the Thursday at Dobbs before the, the shows of the weekend, and Cordy had just come in from, from he lives in Munich now, and it, it was really just like the most welcoming experience. Um, they, they were so nice, and they were so in the moment and having such a wonderful time, and to, to share that experience with other people on their stage was, was just an incredibly generous and, and, and wonderful thing to do. The, the whole period, not to sound utopian in this case, but I mean, there really was a, a vibe of community at the secret show at Dobbs that Friday night and then at the big show on Saturday at Union Transfer. There was just a, a very positive energy in the air. And I think that carries over into the whole element of, of what the punk scene is about. I know there's, there were probably a lot of people at that show who maybe don't get out to shows very often, but you could still feel that it's core that there was a central focus on this band that was giving this energy back. And uh, I think it was a very exciting night, two nights. And uh, yeah, it, it was a wonderful experience to be part of that. I'm very grateful to them for that opportunity. Yeah, I could definitely feel that vibe when I was at the latter of the, the two shows and it was really interesting for me to see children of, of some of the older people there. I mean, really like, you know, nine, 10 year old yeah. kids up yeah. to people who were, I mean, maybe, maybe Bobby Startup's the oldest person there, you know, in his seventies and then kind of this wide spectrum of folks in between and sort of the grand reunion of all different people who hadn't seen each other came in from out of town. It's, it's funny cause like Bobby and I don't see each other that often. Um, we saw each other killing joke earlier this year also at Union Transfer, but Bobby got there early at Soundcheck on Saturday night, and I got to, like, we got to spend a few minutes just hanging out, and it's, it's always great to see him. Yeah. Real, real, real nice guy. Yeah, he was super to, to talk to. Yeah. Uh, he did most of the talking, but it was, it was a great talk. Um, yeah, the show, uh, I think, I usually feel a bit weird about reunion shows because there's there's tends to be something off about them uh i find in my own experience but what i really liked about that show was that there was a genuineness and there was a lot of really interesting creative elements that came into the reinterpretation of the songs by inviting these different folks up there to kind of bring them up to date or just make them mm -hmm. something new and not to sort of a museum piece of you know this is how we performed it when we were you know this many years younger or this many years ago that was that was one of the things when informed sources did the reunion show obviously we had a different singer we had matt mall from a band called the cutoffs in pennsylvania but it, it was great to, to play those songs again to to give them life again but one of the things that i enjoyed doing not enjoyed doing but I really wanted to do and, and did do was from the stage get to thank the people who really aren't with us anymore uh, which Lee Paris David Wildman Carol Schutzbank uh, Eddie Hacksaw Christian Weber uh, Steve Fritz I, and I forgive me if I'm forgetting somebody right now but you know I mean each 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 of those people you could you could talk about for for a very long time but i just wanted to to say their names and have people remember them you know carol had, had managed ruin she was a, a wonderful 
person. David Wildman was, Lee was, you know, I could say that about all of them. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's not really nostalgia as much as it is, like, don't forget these people, you know? Yeah, these are significant contributors who shouldn't be forgotten yeah. for what they contributed because it's part of a continuum. Yeah. And, you know, this crucial element shouldn't be forgotten because the person isn't there to sort of represent themselves. Yeah. But now, you know, I, I, I was very much energized by that situation. I'll probably still get back to doing experimental ambient stuff, but I'm also talking with a guy who was in some early 90s punk bands, which was a period that I was not that involved with punk at that point because I was off, you know, working on book projects and things like that. And he's very interested in putting together uh, a punk project now. And I'm very interested in hearing what he's got to say. And we'll, we'll see if something comes out of that. I'd be curious to hear this. Yeah, me too. Well, super, Frank. It was, it was really great talking to you. So yeah, I had a blast. It was fun. Thanks. I appreciate your interest. Absolutely.